So I forgot to leave. I forgot to move that cup from the other night. So now I have two cups. <laughs> Just in case you wanted to know. <laughs> I did, I did want to say, <clears throat> excuse me before I get started. Um, I want to thank all of you so much for your cards and everything and your kindness to us at Christmas. That You all are so very kind to us. It means a ton to us. Uh, it's always nice to get your cards. We, we did not send out a card, so I don't want any of you to think that we overlooked you. I don't know why we didn't. We talked about it, and then we didn't, so I apologize for that, but thank you all so much. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. I can't believe it's past Christmas already. It seems so far away to get back into Hebrews when we started the Advent series, and here we are. We're it's time for see you next year jokes from the pulpit, which I will not make, but we're there. We're there already. When we stepped away from the letter of Hebrews, we had been focusing on verses 13 through 16 of chapter 11 and the unending faithfulness of God. If you remember, listen to these verses. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. With Abel, the author had started to provide examples of people of faith, and he brought us to the first part of Abraham and Sarah's story. So Abel, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah had all died in faith, not ever having received the things that were promised to them in this world, but they had seen them and greeted them from afar. They had greeted them in their hearts by faith. They considered themselves strangers and exiles here on the earth. They talked like people who were seeking a homeland. They didn't talk or live like people who had found one. If their hearts had been set on their earthly homelands, they would have tried to return to them, but they desired a better country, one not to be found anywhere in this world, a heavenly one. And we found at the end of this section that because they lived in faith, because they had embraced their identity as strangers and exiles here in order to dwell with God in a heavenly country, God was not ashamed to be called their God. They were his people and God was proud to identify with them. While chapter 11 lists so many names and tells so many stories of people who had faith, the focus of the chapter isn't on the faithful, it's on the God they had faith in. All throughout this letter, the author has pressed the point of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus as our only Savior. For 11 chapters now, he has built a case for trusting in him, for forsaking every other means of attempting to gain salvation, for not falling prey to the temptation to live by faith in our own strength, and for letting go of every other desire for a home in this world. And now he brings the witness of biblical history to the faithfulness of God in full into the letter. Because God has proven he is worth having faith in, we can lay aside everything that would hinder us from reaching him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning to ask for your grace, your power, Lord, for these next moments to help me preach, help me speak clearly, 
correctly from this text. And Lord, please enable everyone that is here to understand and believe the things they see in this chapter. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 17 through 22 of chapter 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the son whom you're about to sacrifice. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. There is a legacy that belongs to those of faith. Abraham believed God's word so much He trusted in God so much that when God said of Isaac, the son of whom God had previously said in verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, that Abraham must offer him up as a sacrifice. When he heard that, Abraham obeyed that. In Genesis 22, Abraham literally took Isaac and all the things necessary to offer him up on an altar to God. And while he was in the very act, the knife was raised. God sent an angel who stayed Abraham's hand and directed his attention to a ram caught in some thickets. God knows you trust him. Spare your son. It's interesting in Genesis when Abraham and Isaac are in Moriah and head up to make the sacrifice. Isaac doesn't realize yet what's about to happen. So he asks where the lamb is for the sacrifice, and Abraham answers the answer of faith in God. The Lord himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham knew God. He walked with him. One way or another then, he knew God was going to provide. He was going to keep the word about Isaac that he had made to Abraham. He just didn't know how. In other words, as verse 19 says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's what he's thinking. There's no precedent for that yet, really, that we know of. He just knows that if God promised me that my offspring would come from my son, then he's going to do something that will still enable that to happen, even though I'm about to take his life. Think about, we, we hear that story, we've heard it since we were children. Just think about the faith, though, it would take in the moment to go up that mountain and prepare to do this to your son. He is the God of the impossible. Faith in God is to believe that death is not more final than God's word is. There's no situation God cannot reverse. And that same young man, Abraham's son Isaac, in verse 20, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, his sons, when the time came. Isaac knew that what God had promised to his father and passed to him could also be passed to his sons, that God was going to keep his word. His word was not going to fail, whether he lived to see it or died before he did. And Jacob would bless his grandsons, the sons of his son, because he too had learned that God could be trusted, whether he, again, whether he saw the word come true or not. That son of Jacob, Abraham's great grandson, Joseph in verse 23, as he lay dying, prophesied of what was to come in the future, as God would continue to preserve Abraham's people and keep his word to Joseph's family. The theme here is not people 
that deserve our praise. That's not what the author is doing. The theme here is a God who has proven himself across time and over all natural, all spiritual barriers. The case for the trustworthiness of God for those of faith is being built here. The point is that we would find, his audience would find God as faithful as the people he is listing here did at one time. Look at verses 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So now the text moves forward in salvation history to the time that Joseph foresaw and prophesied of Israel's captivity in Egypt and God's chosen vessel for his word at that time, Moses. Moses was born into a world where male Israelite babies were literally being slaughtered by the Egyptians because they were seen as a threat by the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. Now, they at least had the decency to wait until they were born. They weren't as brutal and as primitive as the butchers who ripped them from the womb today. But killing babies is still killing babies. This was horrendous. But Moses' parents, and somehow... Hebrew, I'm sorry, some Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua happened to fear and revere God more than Pharaoh. So they disobeyed his order to kill the male Hebrew children. They lied when questioned about it by faith in God. They lied to Pharaoh and God blessed them for it. That's fun. The Bible won't even let us grow overconfident in our moral presumptions, will it? It's hard to understand sometimes. As a result of the faith of these midwives, Moses grew up in the very house of Pharaoh, posing as his daughter's son. Moses absolutely could have lived the good life until the day he died. He could have chosen to make Egypt his home. And imagine what he would have been tempted, uh, how he would have been tempted to have that mindset. He would look at, God has blessed me to survive, to live in this place. I should be thankful for all my advantages. I should seek to preserve them. After all, those of faith are seeking a homeland. They do long for a home. They just don't long for an earthly one. Beloved, in that story about Moses and what he could have had and how he could have interpreted God's being spared and growing up with all this wealth, God's good earthly blessings and provision do not mean he is changing the fulfillment of his promises to us for a heavenly home. They're never meant to replace what the promise actually is. They are not to be interpreted that way as we tend to often interpret them. If things are going well, it must be that I'm doing well and right where I'm supposed to be. Sometimes it's the opposite of that. You say, how am I going to know? You're going to seek the Lord and he will make his way clear. God's good earthly blessings do not change where our home is. So Moses put his eyes on God and considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
Do you hear that? Moses didn't say, I don't want wealth, I want Jesus. He said, I want greater wealth than the world's wealth. For he was looking to the reward. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear us talk sometimes about self-denial. Like we talk about it like Buddhists do and devout Catholic monks do, right? We talk about self-denial as a virtue. We're influenced by Kant and the Enlightenment so much in the church. And so we, we, we think of this, you know, taking up our cross, this, this self-denial, virtuous attitude towards life. The Bible doesn't describe, often doesn't describe self-denial like that. What motivated Moses? Greater wealth. A reward motivated Moses. Moses didn't say, rather than have this earthly reward, I'll deny myself that, which is what I really want. I'll deny that and just do what's right, even though it's hard. That's, that's not what it means to have faith in God. It, it isn't denying yourself wealth or a reward. It's believing that God himself is greater wealth and a greater reward. Do you see that? Right? Yes, deny yourself death to gain life. You, you hear Jesus talking? What, what is the, what, what is the hinge of his argument? Don't lose your life. Gain it. You, you hear, don't lose your soul. Gain your soul. Save it. Keep it. Say goodbye. Yes. Deny yourself the stale bread and brackish water of this world. Yes. In order to have the bread of life, which fills you forever and living water, which will always quench your thirst. Yes. Have that. Deny yourself what doesn't do that to have what does do that. Faith is all Godward. It is never focused on the self. Don't die. Gain. Live. It makes sense to trust in God. What is illogical is to desire earthly wealth because it's fleeting. All its pleasures are fleeting for that reason. Because they won't last. Don't seek them. Seek instead what will. That's the logic of the Bible in faith. God offers a well that never runs dry. He doesn't offer broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what the world offers. Jesus is better. It's not just morally sensible to follow him because it's right. It, it's, it's because he's better. There's something very powerful here in this text. Moses didn't know the name of Jesus, at least not that we know it. And yet the text says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. The author is, I think, bringing the Bible together here. The way of looking away from this world in order to find a home in a better country, a heavenly one, that's ultimately, finally, fully the way of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. He is foreshadowing chapter 12 for us here in his list of witnesses to the faithfulness of God, which we'll come to in a few moments. How in the world can the reproach of Christ, what you will suffer by putting your faith in him, how can that be better than all the wealth of Egypt? The only way it can be better if one gains you heaven and the other ends in death with nothing. If one means a heavenly home that lasts forever and the other means an earthly home that will pass away, God looks to what is ultimate, what is firm by his word, what is usually in the future. 
Beloved, faith is to embrace the reproach of Jesus, the reproach of a world that hates those who don't want to build their home in it. Notice this, looking to the reward, right? You see that language, eyes off the world as home, eyes off the world as possessing what we want or what we need and looking to the reward. When you see that word, it should trigger you to remember verse 6 where reward and faith first was addressed. The reward is the presence of God himself forever. That's what God rewards those who seek him with. Looking to that as the goal has soul-sustaining power in the present that holds us close even while we suffer the reproach of this world. And Moses left Egypt by faith. He left his earthly home. You see the pattern of those of faith through this text. He didn't fear the anger of the king. He didn't look to what is seen or who is seen. He looked to God, to his reward, just like those in verse 13 saw and greeted the fulfillment of the promises to them from afar. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Do you see that in the text? Same argument. You want to see God? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. As, as Jim said in his sermon a few weeks ago, let the things of the earth grow strangely dim. You don't see what is invisible with your eyes, beloved. We have to let sight go and walk by faith. The faith of Moses who followed the instructions of God about the Passover because he believed the destroyer would come if he didn't. Why? Because his God said that's what would happen. No matter how strange his instructions, look at 29 through 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. God did not forsake his old covenant people when they left Egypt. He saved them, set them free, and then pulled back the Red Sea and let them walk across on dry ground. How do you take those steps with those two, I assume, massive walls of water on either side of you? You, you don't look at them. You set your eyes on the Lord and you start walking. The Egyptian army had their eyes on their military might, trusted in their thirst for vengeance. They were not people of faith because Egypt was home. Their kingdom was everything. And so God drowned them. And he was with his people when they faced the impregnable walls of Jericho. Walls are only impregnable to human armies, not the Holy One of Israel. Israel saw the walls fall. They saw God fulfill his word again and again and again. God is faithful to anyone who looks to him for salvation rather than to themselves or the world. That's the place of the Gentile woman Rahab in this story. She lived in Jericho. And when the Israelite spies hid in her home, what did she do? She lied because she believed God. By faith, Rahab lied. Right? You, you see it again. Is God condoning dishonesty here? Is that my point this morning? That do these verses mean it's not a sin to lie? You know, so that the, the young people in the audience, uh, dad, the pastor said that by faith I could lie about where I was last night. So you have to let it go. 
No, he didn't say that. And don't bring me into your little schemes, all right? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the text is saying. The point here is that faith overcomes the world. Faith looks so fiercely and intently to God for our home that we do not fear the consequences that come from believing his word on the earth. God is higher than man, right? His word is higher to be obeyed than the words of men. Rahab lied, the midwives lied, but why? Their hope for salvation was God and his word and what, in Rahab's case, what she had merely heard of him. And the faith that trumps the fear of man will be found to be worth it. God preserves those who trust in him no matter what. Look at 32 to 35. And what more shall I say? For time would fail, for time would fail me to tell, excuse me, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. There are two sides of living by faith in the world. There's the side whose record we find in the first part of these verses, where those who won mighty victories and conquered their enemies are recounted that there is a, there is a solid story, at least one solid story behind every description here in these verses. The author is marching right through Old Testament history, showing how those of faith have always lived, right? What their mindset was from Abel to Abraham and Sarah to Moses in the Exodus to the judges and David and the prophets. Sometimes having faith means success and victory. And you can, you can feel the excitement and the optimism just dripping from this text. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We remember the stories of those widows that did. Sometimes faith means all is well. Pick up the text in the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Who's signing up? Then there's the other side of living by faith in the world. The much more common side of what it's like to walk with Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. Torment from the world. Sometimes physical and even fatal. There's imprisonment. We, we Sometimes I don't know what to do as a as a man, as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, with the fact that we are so insulated here in America from what our brothers and sisters 
around most of the rest of the world endure on a daily basis. Because the, the reason it troubles me, I don't mean to imply that we should feel guilty like we're sinning just by virtue of being born here and not there, right? I don't mean to imply that. What I'm saying is, is that the Bible seems like it's written to an exilic people that don't feel comfortable, that are suffering. That tends to be the general tone. And beloved, we generally don't, unless it's personal things in our lives, which are absolutely real and valid. But there, there, there's, we have not experienced this, most of us, if, if ever, th- these consequences of following Jesus in the world. And, and I hear, I, I, we know it's coming. I've heard that since I was a boy. I thought it'd be here by now. I read all the books. I read 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Return in 1988. Oops. Don't do that. Right? God said not to do that. We, we always try to, you gotta figure it out. You're not gonna figure it out. Okay? We know this day is coming. But when, when, when we can't, when we get mad and lose our stability and get angry and upset over the slightest inconveniences in the church, Where do we think we are going to find what the Bible is talking about when they will cut our heads off if we don't renounce it? Right? Do we, what takes you, what takes you out at the knees? It doesn't take much. Right? You, people, you can see people get mad on Facebook because somebody didn't say hi to them in the store. I saw them. They didn't see me. I guess, I guess I'm just chopped liver of that person. But boy, when they're going to cut my head off, I'm going to stand for... Oh, come on. You need grace to stand. Nobody's doing it in their own strength. This is the common side. And we need to ask the question here, in a chapter about faith and how it, 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 it obtains the reward, it obtains the presence of God by His grace, why would you include these things on the list? Why would you do that? The author has built an airtight case for the trustworthiness of God and his faithfulness with example after example. Why ruin it by including the fact rather than hiding the fact that some people suffered and even died and some horribly because of their faith? Why would you do that? You're not going to up the numbers if you tell the truth. Why share the ones who didn't get to live their best life now? Why share the ones that Joel Osteen and Paula White and Joyce Meyer and T.D. Jakes won't talk about or would even say lack faith because their lives go so poorly? Why share the ones that aren't as cool and as outspoken and as boisterous as like Pastor Greg Locke on Facebook, just driving around in his car, dropping moral truth bombs on the church all the time? And others who grandstand their Christianity on Facebook, right? How cool it is out. They're not afraid. I'm not ashamed. You sound just like Jesus. Brag, 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 brag about you and your faith and your principles. Because you're the Savior. Why include these things? Because the God who sustains those of faith is the same. Whether his children live and see victory... Or suffer and die knowing only pain and loss. The reward for both will be 
the same because God always keeps his promises. And he does not look over or look down upon those who do not stop the mouths of lions with their faith, but die in it. Most people don't live on the mountaintop. Notice verse 35. Notice how the rationale of the faithful is always the same. It is always future. It's always otherworldly, right? Some were tormented, refusing to accept release. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Do you hear the insane rationale of these people? No, 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 don't let me out of here. No, 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 don't kill me. Send me home. Do you hear their cries in the text? No, no, don't, 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 keep me in here. I'm suffering for Christ. Keep me right here. Take my life. Send me to my father. Send me to the better country, the heavenly one. My goodness. Sometimes we look to God in faith and we succeed. Other times we look to him in faith and we lose. But we always look to him because the point is never the victory or the loss. The point is never me. The point is always, it is better to hitch my wagon to you, live or die, gain or lose. Because of who you are. The world will mistreat those of faith as unworthy fools to live here. God will say the world is not worthy to have you in it, little flock. Remember verse 16. You remember this? Listen again. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. They will be vindicated when they get home. This is always what is true about you, beloved. Always. Whether you are stopping the mouths of lions or being sawn in two for your faith, that is always true. Therefore, it's true of you everywhere in between the extremes. God is also faithful to his people in between the extremes. In the daily grind of everyday life, right here in the Ohio Valley, West Virginia, every day for every single one of his children, the big ones and the small ones. As if there was a difference. Or if those classes even existed. It's just to make a point. He knows your name. He knows your life. He knows the minute you wake up. And the minute you lie down. Every day. And literally. Has every single one of the hairs on your head. Numbered. Even a head like mine. There's still stubble here. Right? He knows you're winning. You're losing the things that are threatening you in your stomach right now. From the smallest things for the youngest people here. To the biggest things for the oldest people here. He knows everything that is going on inside of you. Biological, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. All of it. All of it. None of it goes unseen. None of it goes uncared for. None of it. Often the people around you won't understand what you're going through in the same way that you feel what you're going through, right? God is never in the dark 
about you. Ever. Ever. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He is not ashamed to be called your God. Faith is about its object primarily, not its bearer. And faith always says, because it believes, God is better. He is where I will find my identity, my hope, my approval, my peace, my salvation, my home. Right? Always. 39 and 40. And all these, those commended, though commended through their faith. In other words, though God commends them for having faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The author unites those of faith from biblical history with the saints to whom he's writing, and by the Holy Spirit, also with us. God has one plan through which he will keep his promises and prove himself faithful to his people throughout all human history. It's this new covenant of which the author has spoken so clearly and extensively. The people of old in verse 2, the people throughout chapter 11, and the history of the Bible in Israel, those who won, those who lost, they all received their commendation through faith, just like we will. The plan was to delay the fulfillment of the promise until we could all partake of it together. All together be saved through Christ, through whom we will never fail. We were all meant to finally be made perfect by the one through whom God kept all his precious promises to the faithful, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all perfected. We're all brought in. We're all made one. We all reach home through him. That's why Moses didn't, maybe didn't, I don't think, knew the name, the time, when he would come, what he would be like, exactly what he would do. But what he was doing, Christ would save him. Christ would be his savior. Jesus has always been the object of faith. Always. Therefore, in 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Full circle. That was the admonition in verse 2. Looking to him, right? This, these are bookends. That's been the point all along. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. How often have we heard that this great cloud of witnesses are this crowd of the faithful cheering us on from heaven in our race, right? Great cloud of witnesses. I don't mean to burst any bubbles if that's the case, but this crowd is not cheering us on. That's not their function. This crowd is witnessing to the faithfulness of God in Christ for us to see. That's what's just happened. They're witnessing has just taken place in chapter 11. They are witnesses to his faithfulness. They are witnesses to his promises 
being kept and the fact that they are and they will be. They're not witnesses to our performance. There are much cooler things to watch in heaven than us down here. They are there to proclaim to us that the God in whom they trusted, even when they did not see and did not obtain what was promised, is in fact worth trusting in. That's what they are witnesses to. The argument here is, since there are so many witnesses to the faithfulness of God, keeping his promises in and through Jesus Christ for all of us, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us let go of this world. Let us stop clinging to it and trying to force it to become home. Let us do what they did and count the reproach of Christ worth more than the pleasures of the world. Let us speak like we're seeking a homeland that is heavenly, not of this world, a better possession and an abiding one. Remember the end of chapter 10. Let us lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. Our unbelief, our doubt, our worry, our iniquity. Our effort to earn our salvation through our works, which is the main sin he's described in Hebrews. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, those of us who live in the day and age when Jesus has obtained eternal redemption. We can look back to it and see it. Endurance is one of the central words in Hebrews. It implies that we're running. We need to keep the lungs of our souls in shape. Shed the excess weight, shed the excess things that weigh us down, making it harder to run with endurance and instead believe only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be the only thing that holds you together, right? Why? Because you've got to run and you can't run with this self-help thing and this self-improvement idea and that idea of how you find a fulfilling life and this idea of how you prosper and this idea of how you become wise and this idea of how you get the excellent Christian life. Just stack all that on. You know how hard it is to run when you got a bunch of junk strapped on your back? Believe the gospel and sprint home. That's what Hebrews is saying. You don't need all the other stuff. They didn't have it. They endured while they were getting sawn in two. Believe the message of great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect it? You don't neglect it. Again, you don't neglect it by saying, you know what, I think that's heresy and you don't actually get saved by grace through Jesus Christ. You neglect it by piling so much other stuff on you that it all starts to look the same. I'm going to get home by 10% gospel, 10% willpower, 10% this, 10% that, 10%. And then when the gospel is one among many saviors, it's no savior. You add anything onto Jesus is efficient for your salvation or your endurance. And it's like a marathon runner who lives on a steady diet of Slim Jims and peanut M&Ms. He's not going to do well when the marathon comes. Notice, beloved, we're not told to look to the great cloud of witnesses for our endurance. Where where do we look? What has the author of Hebrews been trying to get us to do the whole time? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, only him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of God. We set our eyes on the real true north. We set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Well, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and the perfecter. I thought I was the founder of my faith. No. You wouldn't keep it if you were. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The author and the finisher. What does God do with what God begins? God completes what God begins. Beloved, we believe because he awakened us with his life-giving word of grace in the gospel. Right? Remember John 1, 12 through 13? We were born again as the children of God, not by the will of the flesh. Like, could it be any more black and white? That's not how you were converted. Right? Not by the will of the flesh or the will of man. Nobody else's idea for you, but of God. He is the author of this faith in which we must endure. Therefore, we will endure. Because he will also finish it. He will perfect it, to be specific. It will gain its object, beloved. Do not fear, then. Your salvation is not in your hands, ultimately. It is in God's and he does not let go, even if you do. Christianity isn't set up for moralists and achievers who find their identity in themselves and co-opt God to become even better people. That's not born of God, that's earthly and worldly. Christianity is set up to be an innumerable number of people who are just clinging on to Jesus, who is doing all of the work for them. We find here that Jesus is not only the perfecter of our souls. Remember, as by his single sacrifice, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified through faith back in 1014. He's the perfecter of our souls. He is now the perfecter of our faith. This thing we've been exhorted to have. It will become exactly what it needs to be to finally save us. Beloved, as we finish this text, consider what it's saying in verse 2 about Jesus. What? How did he do it? Right? It was Again, it wasn't magic because he was the Son of God. It wasn't like all like, well, I've got to endure this for three hours now and then we'll be done. Beloved, he was living a real human life, fully God in human flesh. Jesus lived by faith. Did you know that? Jesus lived by faith. Jesus lived by looking somewhere other than here for his reward. So we can listen to him. We can trust him. He isn't booming this down over the portals of heaven for us to take up and try to accomplish. He came down and embodied it and did it for us to become the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He knows what he is perfecting in you. He had it. He's been right where we are and perfectly completed what we are also being commanded to do. Jesus didn't put his eyes on the approval of men. He didn't trust in his own strength. He didn't live for the moment or try to build a home in this world. He said goodbye to all of that. Why? For the joy. Right? What was Jesus living for, willing to die for? Joy. Where was it? Oh, it wasn't here. 
So do you understand that shaped his life? That made him willing to die. The joy that was set before him. It comes after this. He fixed his eyes on the Father. He just did 11.6. He fixed his eyes on the Father. On drawing near to him. Where Psalm 16 tells us. There is the fullness of joy. And pleasures forevermore at his right hand. That's where Jesus wanted to go. Where are pleasures forevermore? My Father's right hand. Remember how Hebrews started? Establishing where Jesus is right now. As they read. As we read now. Where is he? The right hand. Why? Well, Because he wanted joy. And pleasure forevermore. And by the eyes of faith and faith alone, Jesus endured through the cross. He despised the shame heaped on him by this world for doing so. In other words, the shame was powerless to control him. Right? He despised it. It held no sway over him. Let it come. Let the world heap it on him in waves as it did The joy he's looking to obtain won't come from this world anyway, so he never needed the world's approval. Do you see how freely Jesus lived and died? Once that desire for this world to be home, once that desire for this world to deliver joy, once that was gone, which he never had it, right? But once it's gone, as we've seen in chapter 11, then you begin to live and you can die very well. How about more Christian books on dying well than living well? A new one comes out every week. Nobody talks about dying well, about going home well, about forsaking everything well. We just love the world and we sanctify it so that it doesn't sound like that's what it is. The goal is to die. Beloved, it's to die, to get Home. Who is the ultimate proof that God keeps his promises? It's Jesus Christ. Do you see the letter come full circle now? From what it said about Jesus in chapter 1. Here's the why of all that great theology. Christology. Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Is not only the biblical proof. That he is the fulfillment of all scripture and the son of God and son of David that God promised would rule from his throne. Yes, he is and always will be that. He is also, we find here, the champion of all those who live by faith. His position at God's right hand is the ultimate proof that God rewards those who seek him. 11.6 For all those of faith are in Christ Therefore, we will be seated with him forever. Because God has proven he is worth having faith in. We can also lay aside everything that would hinder us from reaching him. We're just a few more days from the beginning of a new decade, 2020. I want you to throw your spiritual New Year's resolutions in the trash can. 
my willpower or willingness or devotion or dedication or commitment are not going to get me to the Father. Faith that looks away from me is going to get me to the Father. And faith, beloved, is a fruit of the Spirit, not the flesh. All that I am called to fix my eyes on is in heaven. It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. For my faith to hold in the present, the eyes of my soul must be locked spiritually on the founder and perfecter of it. They cannot be fixed on me and what I am doing. Beloved, God has proven himself as worthy. He has proven himself as trustworthy. Stay on your knees before him for the faith to lay aside everything that would keep us from reaching him. Beloved, let us go back to prayer, to dependence. That's what prayer is, dependence, to living by faith, by taking advantage of the access Hebrews is arguing to show Jesus bought for us. It's no coincidence that all this talk about faith and endurance come on the heels of all this talk about Jesus as an indestructible eternal high priest who mediates. The foundation of all the faith talk now is Jesus is my perfect and indestructible high priest talk for the last several chapters. All chapter 11 is doing is teaching us to use the access that we have to Jesus at the right hand of God the Father in real time, in every moment and stage of life. We look from our knees if we want to stand in this world. Beloved, Jesus has done it all. Look to him. Look at him. Look away from this world. Lay aside its weight. Lay aside your sin. Lay it aside. It dishonors God and it damages your hope. Look away from it. Look to Christ. That's the, to me, that's the answer. How, how, how do I deal with this? You, you look to Christ. I think everything boils down to faith where our eyes are looking. Come to him and give up. Just give up. Trust in him. Always remember. Always remember this. Faith is what Jesus started and will finish for you. Abide in him. Abide in him. June is going to come. We'll sing a song of invitation together. It'll be on the screen. If you need to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I invite you to come. If you already have, it is the coming is not what saves. Faith in Christ is what saves. If that's what you've done or what you want to do, Please come. If, if you want to join our church, if you want to be baptized because you have believed in Christ, please come. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. Lord, watch over our souls now as we think about your word. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
much for coming this morning, everyone. I hope you have a great week. I also hope if you're able, you'll be back tonight with us. We'll start at 6.30, all right? Continue our way through Genesis. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are, all that you've accomplished for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, by your grace, be with us. Help us believe and look to your son. And in him we pray. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.